0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, we speak to Dr Alejandro Adler, who is Dean of Student Life and Wellbeing at Upper Canada College, and recently served as Director of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network in New York, where he oversaw wellbeing science and policy initiatives. He's also served as the Deputy Director of the Global Happiness and Wellbeing Coalition, and was an Associate Research Scientist at the Centre for Sustainable Development in the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Prior to his time in New York, Alejandro was the Director of International Education at the University of Pennsylvania's Positive Psychology Center, where he earned his undergraduate and postgraduate qualifications, ultimately leading to his PhD. Alejandro's research, programs, and policy work focus on well-being, education, skills, human capital development, and public policy. He's worked with a number of international multilateral organizations and with the governments of various countries, including Bhutan, Nepal, India, Mexico, Peru, the United Arab Emirates, Australia, Jordan, and Colombia to infuse the education systems in these countries with positive psychology skills and life competencies to measure the impact of these interventions on youth wellbeing and to inform education reform at local, regional, and national levels. Alejandro has published articles in scholarly and non-academic publications and has presented at global conferences and events. He's advised international organizations, including the World Bank, the UN, and the OECD. And he's currently one of 60 members of the UN's International Wellbeing Expert Group. In this conversation, Nick and I discuss with Alejandro the science of well-being, well-being studies and research globally, and Alejandra's research on how we can most effectively integrate well-being science into education systems. There are many fascinating parts of this conversation, such as Alejandra's research that has shown that globally, belonging is the most important component of well-being, that well-being is always definable at a local level, and that well-being is buildable and skills-based, and these skills have what Alejandro describes as the three M's of well-being. First, well-being is measurable. Second, well-being is malleable in the sense that it's teachable and learnable. And third, that well-being is meaningful in that building these skills that help to build well-being contribute to desirable life outcomes, including health and life expectancy. And he describes how his research has identified at least 30 skills that meet these three M's. We also discuss some of the best education systems in the world, such as the education system in Finland, a country which has been ranked as the top country in the World Happiness Report for the past six years. We discuss what's led to that and how they've infused their education system with well-being education. And Alejandro describes the start of his PhD dissertation, research built on the since, which has shown that students and educators who are healthier mentally and physically learn and work better. It's a great conversation. Really hope you enjoy it. So this is our conversation with Dr. Alejandro Adler. Hey
1: Alejandro, hey. how are you doing my friend? Good. How are you, Nick? I'm good. It's good to see you. Hey John, nice to meet you. You too. All right Alejandro. Great to have you here. Really, really excited to have this conversation. I think we want to kind of start with the micro, zoom out to the macro. You've existed and worked on some, I think, kind of the the highest levels of both really granular research on specific aspects of human flourishing or well-being, but you've also worked on that global stage where you're kind of looking at these concepts through, I think, a much larger and, and more diverse lens. Let's start with that granular and just orient ourselves a little bit around language, and then maybe we can scale up from there. How do you define conceptualize, or maybe like to just explain to people well-being or human flourishing?
2: Great. Well, first and foremost, thank you, Nick and John, for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure and a privilege, an honor, really. And that is the first question that often I get asked is very tangible, subjective, personal idea that's been wrestled with for millennia. And Aristotle Confucius, the Buddha. They all try to come up with what does thriving flourishing achieving a life worth living really mean and i think it's impossible to have one definition i do think it's contextually and culturally specific but there are certain global human aspirations which is to the extent that it's possible ill-being reduction, and well-being promotion. And I'll just talk about what some of the ingredients on the ill-being side are Perfect. and what the ingredients on the well-being side are in general that tend to be pretty consistent across cultures and different circumstances with the knowledge that there are nuances whenever you're in different countries, contexts, cultures. Ill being, unmanageable stress. We know that manageable stress is necessary to get things done. But when unmanageable stress gets to anxiety and we live highly stressful lives and our lives are full of unnecessary toxic levels of chemicals that once served us well to run away from the saber-toothed tiger, but now it's just cortisol that is building up. Sure, That is undesirable pretty universally. Sadness, that is normal if you lose a loved one, is something. But if you're chronically Sad, if you're chronically deflated, if you don't have energy, if you have symptoms of what we in the West call depression, that is universally undesirable. General states of not just mood, but also personality and cognitive states that don't give you a sense of identity. So, any kind of disorder when it comes to Having a sense of more than one personality in the West, we might call that borderline personality or multiple personality disorder. Not having a sense of reality in the West, you know that is DSM Pi classified as schizophrenia and so on. So all of that ill-being side of things, negative of zero, undesirable. So universally, people do not desire to. It's not experiencing hard stop. It's chronically experiencing. Yeah painful, undesirable states of mental, cognitive, emotional, behavioral, and social circumstances. On the well-being side, yes, positive emotions, which is the very simplified version of our Western understanding of happiness is desirable, but it goes much further than that. The most universally desirable component of well-being is belonging. That is what we've found is really transcendent and cross-cutting across cultures, which is a combination of healthy relationships and a sense of meaning and purpose. So when you belong to a community and that community represents something that is truly bigger than yourself, is truly something that you commit to and you're willing to make personal sacrifices in terms of time, resources, financial, and otherwise, and you feel seen, you feel heard, you feel that someone has your back, that you truly belong, that is the fundamental core human aspiration, to feel belonging, to feel a sense of love, not in the romantic sense, in the human sense of real Genuine connection. Can I
1: ask you a nuanced question about that? All that makes complete sense, right? We had Mark Schultz on. We're talking about right the longstanding Harvard project, you know, Tal Ben-Shahar's been like that reverberates through, right? The research on belonging and relationships and whatnot. So you've got fix the bad, right? Alleviate the bad where possible, or the excessively bad or unpleasant, right? You've got build the good. The primary ingredient globally is belonging. And it sounded like you included meaning in that list. And I wonder, do you see meaning as an inherent part of it? Do you see it as sort of separate and distinct? Is it really hard to have meaning without belonging? Because I I wonder, you correct me if I'm wrong, but if belonging is number one, I'd, I'd often hear people argue that like the number two predictor is meaning
2: and they're probably closely tied. So for me, healthy relationships is one ingredient meaning is a different ingredient and when you have healthy ingredients that are meaning and infused with meaning then you have a sense of belonging okay belonging is a combination of healthy relationships embedded with meaning and that is really the special sauce for well-being so define meaning for us then meaning is a sense that you're part of something greater than yourself part that of a transcendent peace yeah plans, yourself and that you're willing to sacrifice short-term pleasant experiences short-term resources for the benefit of the greater good can we highlight
1: something really quick? That that definition is so useful. It makes me think of a lot of the stuff that Paul Bloom puts out in The Sweet Spot, the difference between meaning and happiness. But you just highlighted something that comes up almost every show and I think it's really important. We're not talking about constant pleasantness. In oh. fact, one of the single greatest predictors of happiness or well-being or flourishing meaning, you're telling us often requires Sacrifice, compromise, engaging in unpleasantness—right for
2: something. Absolutely, greater. which is why when I was talking about ill-being, I only said removing right. chronic, chronic ill-being. Right, depression, mm-hmm. the anxiety. these yeah. languages—not short-term sadness, not short-term stress, not short-term pain or hard stuff—that is necessary to lead a meaningful. Fulfilling life, eudaimonia, really. And you know, this is your doctoral research, eudaimonia. But I mean, that's what Aristotle was really talking about, right? I mean, the good is a meaningful life embedded with rich, loving relationships.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah. I take it you'd also want to rule out, in the short term cases, though, strong, acute experiences of very deep, low emotion. So you'd want to say, you know, chronic low emotion, chronic negative emotions, that would contribute towards ill-being or be something that counts against well-being. So eliminating short-term negative emotions, but what about short-term, deeply acute negative emotions? Trauma. You're talking about trauma, for example? Mm. Presumably Mm. that, those kind of short-term experiences where they're very deeply negative, those would be part of ill-being, as it were?
2: Yeah, I mean, in general, trauma is generally considered... Undesirable, except in certain circumstances where it's part of resilience, or even to use Nick's language, anti fragility building, buoyancy building, where you move from the traditional post traumatic stress disorder model to post traumatic growth. If and only if you already have the skills to encounter a traumatic experience or what would traditionally be traumatic for other people. But you're able to lean into a shocking experience because you're anticipating it. And you're able to not only not have a dip, but you're able to lean into it and to grow and to be well, not in spite of it, but to be better off because of it and stronger because of it, right? And you remain buoyant throughout the shock. So general, shocks and especially traumas, absolutely, most of the times undesirable, except for very specific circumstances. If you're training an army, let's go to one extreme, you want to prepare people to be able to face shocking and traumatic experiences without having the very unnecessary, undesirable repercussions of post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course, we would all love to live in a world without war, but before we reach that ideal state of world peace, we need to have people who are ready to engage without putting their psychological health at risk. Absolutely. To your point earlier,
1: like what are two of the things that my understanding is like most underpin resilience or anti fragility? We have Lisa Miller on. It's, it's meaning and it's belonging and it's spirituality and it's like connectedness to something like somewhat transcendent, I think, right? It'll come in full circle a little bit. I am curious about other ingredients, but yeah, John, jump in here.
0: Well, my main question, which you preempted as it were, Alejandro, was what you've learned about well being from these global studies you've done because you've worked. With it in so many countries and with multilateral organizations and governments of various countries, Bhutan, Nepal, India, Mexico, Peru, United Arab Emirates, Australia, Jordan, Colombia, I'm sure there's others to add to that list. So you said the main finding you've made across your studies in these nations is that belonging is the most important component of well-being. Are there any other findings you've made? And have your views on well-being changed at all as you've been working with more and more nations?
2: Yeah, so. Those are the core findings. But whenever we've worked in now 18 countries, we find that we need to take very much an appreciative inquiry approach to understand what are the strengths that already exist in this culture? What are the worldviews in this specific context and culture? What does this culture in this context value? So that whatever framework of well being, we're using actually resonates with the people we're working with, and they have full ownership over their own model of well being. We can't just copy and paste a Perma like model, or a Carol Riff, or a Diener model, or take your pick. That doesn't work. We need to, yes, come in with almost a tabula rasa and say, what does well being mean for you? What strengths already exist here, and how do we leverage those strengths? And what I've learned over the years is number one, well being is always definable at a local level, it's buildable and skills based. And we've found that these skills have what we call the three M's they're measurable, they're malleable. And that they're teachable and learnable and they're meaningful and that they contribute to desirable life outcomes, including well-being, learning and other desirable life outcomes, including health, life expectancy and so on. So, I mean, not all skills, but and there's much more research to be done, but we now have a constellation of at least 30 skills that are measurable, malleable and meaningful. And when we work with a new country, we bring out the full constellation of 30 skills. And again, we ask, which of these skills are most relevant to you? We don't have a cookie cutter, pre chosen set of these are the five most important skills mindfulness, resilience, growth mindset. No, 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 no. Take a look at these and we democratize the entire process and we say, which of these best address your needs and goals? And we work to develop the skills that are most relevant to each community's needs and goals, considering every single stakeholder. And what we've learned is if educators, not just teachers, but everyone from the director slash principal to the person in the cafeteria and everyone in between, if and only if they learn about the skill and they practice it and embody it and really live it, for themselves, first and foremost, as human beings, not as educators, then and only then can they actually teach the skill, let's say mindfulness explicitly during a health and life skills course, an advising course, or eventually embedded into a math, science, literature, history course, whether it's a two-minute mindfulness meditation exercise before an exam or embed judgment and decision-making as a skill, for example, and examine Winston Churchill, World War II in history, and what kind of judgment and decision-making and did he have to go through, and critical thinking and so on and so forth, right? And bring skills, virtues, yeah. the class, right, virtues, and, and, and really embed that into the classroom. But if and only if you have learned and lived, then the entire traditional hierarchy of the teacher or, educator is the knower of knowledge, and the student is merely the recipient of that knowledge. You break with that hierarchy and you create a genuine sense of mentorship where educators created an enabling condition for students to develop these skills and students feel seen. And that is the number one mediator we've seen that contributes to enhance student well-being is. A sense of feeling seen and heard by mentors. And when teachers stop being authority figures and they become true mentors who care about them. And it's only it. when educators who are living and embodying these well being skills are in the classroom that the entire ecosystem becomes a well being ecosystem. Hi, friends. Nick here with just a brief
1: interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well being and anti fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com.
0: I'm interested in the breadth of this, not just within education, but beyond education to workplace well-being, intimated by some of the things you said about leaders in an organization and people working in the cafe, for example. Everyone needs to be educated about and trained in these key skills relative to the particular culture you're working in and embody them, represent them, be role models of them. So then I'm wondering, because you said educators broadly, that's you know how you got onto that point about all the people in organizations. So it's not just the case that teachers, for example, lecturers do this when they're teaching about a certain skill, but is your view that on workplace well-being more broadly, that anyone who's involved in some kind of mentoring role, so they are, as it were, someone from whom someone else learns about a particular skill, so the leader of an organization, say the CEO of an organization, a person might not have much direct contact with them. They're certainly not, say, to be directly trained by them, but they're going to be in meetings with them where they see them chairing the meetings, and they're probably taking mental notes on, okay, this is how a CEO chairs a meeting. Is your view that person needs to be trained in these skills and embed them in their daily practices for workplace well-being to really be properly fostered?
2: Yep. Yeah, so whether it's a school, whether it's a company, whether it's a government agency, whether it's an NGO, it's a group of people, right? And the only way that we've seen this being truly sustainable in the long run is not just training ideally every single person in the building with these skills on learning and living them before they can teach and embed them. But we also do a training of local trainers so that we eventually become obsolete. And they have the local in-house capacity to continue to introduce new skills. And so we do an additional set of training of them as trainers. And so if you have limited resources, then, of course, you would start with your senior leaders, your C-suite, if you're talking about a traditional company. And they would initially yes be trained on whatever life skills are most relevant but ideally they would be trained as trainers as well so that they can themselves train their direct reports and then their direct reports could then eventually train their own teams and so on and so forth but a company a school any organization is only as good as The people who lead, right? And if a leader doesn't embody whatever you're looking for, whether it's growth mindset, mindfulness, vulnerability, honesty, what have you, then it's not going to work. And it can't be just words, right? I mean, actions. It needs to be in the day to day showing up behavioral habits that you show in the words and your social interactions in what you do full ecosystemic
1: yeah integration of all these things yeah yeah it's interesting you know we were chatting a little bit kind of before we hit record and we were we we're talking about the education system in finland and person sort of led that charge and i'd love for you to, to speak about that a little bit more if you're willing to and what kind of some of your hopes are for, for upper canada college but it occurred to me as you were talking about these 30 skills and how you might kind of reduce those based on the culture, the audience, the population, and, and get more specific if we did a, a case study. My understanding of sort of the evolution of the Finnish system, which for our listeners is, I think, widely considered one of the, if not the best education system in the world. I read a great book, Alan Ruppelschell, the, the Job, and it talked about the evolution as a starting from the general premise that Finland lacks certain amount of resources, lacks a huge expansive population. What did that mean? Their education system needed to focus on critical thinking, creativity, specific skills that would lend themselves to doing more with less, right? And that contributed to Finland as a whole and those sorts. It's everything you're talking about, right? But I could imagine at some point he looked at this list of 30 I'd love for you to speak to that list a little bit more specifically, some of the things that stand out and said, "Okay, these are the five, 10, whatever that we as a country need to focus on. And it seems like you could expand that model. You could scale it up or scale it down to however big a particular team is, right, or
2: community. Right, absolutely. So the person, to my knowledge, who was the first visionary in Finland in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oli Beka Heinenen, then Minister of Education, introduced what was then called socio-emotional learning, precisely to introduce some of the skills that you were referring to, Nick. So critical thinking, creative thinking, judgment and decision-making, effective communication, emotional literacy, self-management, self-control, and the list goes on and on. And as we've seen throughout the years, students... And educators who are better psychologically teach and learn better. And 20 years after, together with Singapore, they are the two best public education systems in the entire world. And Finland, being the thriving democracy itself, now become the go to country in terms of we want to replicate whatever the Finnish did. As their investment in human capital is paying off so well that for the last seven years, they've been the number one country in the world happiness report, right? So they've done something very well there, which is they invested 20 years ago, more than 25 years ago in human capital and a generation afterwards, we're already seeing the enormous fruits of the well-being that the Finnish people are enjoying. The IB Organization, the International Baccalaureate Organization, which is, to my knowledge, one of the four most international organizations in the world, together with the United Nations, the World Bank, Coca-Cola and <laughs> the other Organization, they have over five thousand schools in over hundred fifty countries. Maybe you can come up with a fifth organization with that international of a presence. Two years ago, the IPO said our model and and the international baccalaureate is in most places considered the gold standard for primary and secondary education so kindergarten through year or grade 12 anything pre-university or college but they did recognize that as society has evolved that the ib the international baccalaureate has remained way too academic and has not Progressed at the rhythm of society to prepare students to face the challenges and to embrace the opportunity that life presents with skills based learning. And so, two years ago, the IP organization decided to appoint Olipeka Heinanen as their new director general, and they have a full commitment to putting well-being at the top of their agenda. As you're well aware, they have partnered with the University of Oxford. They published a phenomenal paper with them late in last year, where where they published a new IB well-being framework, where school life satisfaction is the ultimate goal. But Which I really like, by the way. I was, yeah. I was kind
1: of reading through some of the pages you gave me this morning and yesterday, as you know, and it's, it's really nice. To me, it strikes a nice balance between like simple to understand, but, but thoughtful and
2: nuanced in the science, I think, at the same time. Absolutely. And it has four main contributors, one of which is skills. The other one is health. The other one is environment, which includes physical, social, environment, and so on. People. People. Yeah. As we, as we discussed, yeah. It's hiding in plain sight. Yep. <laughs> so, and it's peers, teachers, parents, and so on, right? That's the fourth contributor, right? Which is, you know, the Harvard study, and it's where we started. So, belonging. And this is very much Ed Wiener's first work with life satisfaction being that perennial universal human aspiration. You can really put anything under life satisfaction. And that is why they purposefully made it broad enough so that any country and any school and any of the 150 plus countries they're in can put whatever well-being outcomes they want under the broad school life satisfaction umbrella for both educators and for, and for students. Right? It doesn't say student life satisfaction or student school satisfaction. It's school life satisfaction for both educators and for students. And the phenomenal thing about the IB is that more than 50% of IB schools, and most people don't know this because there's a misconception, at least in kind of the affluent Western countries, that the IB schools are private, elitist, privileged schools. More than 50% of the more than 5,000 IB schools around the world are public schools. So once well being early adopter schools, Really show what can and should be done in terms of standardizing a well being education curriculum, measurement, evaluation system, pedagogical system, co curricular programming, and so on. And they systematize this across 5,000 plus schools. This is going to be a bottom up way to affect public policy. So rather than going to ministers of education and having it be a top down, it's going to be so many educators who are part of teacher unions suddenly being trained in these well-being skills or life skills or whatever each school and country chooses to call them. And their counterparts in the union saying like, wait, I want that too. And politicians being politicians needing union supports will need to respond to that and scale this to every single school within their countries. And, you know, in the last few years, I did a lot of the work with the UN, with Columbia University, with the World Bank, and so on. And it's great working at a large scale from the Ministry of education level. But there is a dilution effect when you work with so many schools. In Peru, we, we work with over 800 schools. Jaime Saavedra, after that amazing project, is now the head of education at the World Bank after our successful well-being schools intervention in in Peru. But when it's such a top bottom approach and you have a training of trainers who then train other trainers who then train other trainers who eventually train the educators, there's a dilution effect, right? And when it's a more, more bottom down approach, which is what the IB is looking to do, you don't have that. And when it's systematized and it's systemic curriculum pedagogy, measurement and evaluation system, and so on. So this is tremendously exciting here at the college, at UCC, at Upper Canada College. We're very lucky to be one of the early adopter of well-being schools, and uh, we can't wait to see what comes in the coming months and years. Yeah, it's super exciting. Yeah, we're looking we're forward here, to seeing what, what happens. I don't know well. what, your, what your experience was, but I think the college is uniquely poised to be a paragon of well-being education, but I'd love to hear yeah, you. I totally
1: advice. agree. At this point, since I visited you know, Upper Canada College, I've dug into some of the materials a little bit more deeply. I've worked with a lot of schools. I've looked at a lot of schools. John has as well. It is very tempting, and I'm guilty of this, to try to do everything and cover everything. And what I mean by everything is stuff that sometimes isn't quite as empirically rigorous as other things. And I think what I really like about the three M's and the approach and the expertise and the thoughtfulness that UCC is taking is it seems to be really, really tightly focused on the stuff where you're going to get the greatest juice, you know, kind of out of the most efficient squeeze, so to speak. Right. And I I think it's really thoughtfully done and I'm
2: I'm excited and looking forward to seeing what you all do with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, without sounding pretentious, we want to build <laughs> we want to build the Tesla here and then yeah. hopefully inspire for people to build whatever is most relevant and most resonates with them. But yes, we want to build the best possible version of what education, a truly transformative education experience can be for human flourishing, for lifelong human flourishing.
0: Yeah. Great. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's
1: show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website
0: at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.